podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so with FPL and objects fading in our rearview mirror, we're taking a different tack this week in the first of a new series, striking a new direction in this strange time. Yes, the genesis of our WGCA in lockdown series, which as you'll hear shortly, means a short-term diversion away from FPL and into pastures adjacent, yet new. I'm joined by Stag and Nick, of course, today. Nick, you all right? Hey, mate. Yep, I'm all right. Thank you. Uh, you know, just enjoying life in the lockdown, um, missing the football so, so much, obviously, as well. Uh yeah, but everything's fine. Just, uh, you know, getting on with things as you can in this scenario. But yeah, just to remind everyone who we are. We are Who Got The Assist. Twitter is um, at WGTNSCOFPL for Tom, at WGTNSCOFNIC for me. And Stag can be found at FPL Stag. We're also on Instagram, WGTA.FPL. So what's on the pod this week, Anthony? So yeah, as we pivot away from FPL, as Tom was saying, what we're going to do first of all is just look at the world of football for just a second. There's been quite a lot happening with regards to the furloughing of non-playing staff at clubs, players taking pay cuts, etc. So we're going to have a quick look at that and some other football news, such as a change of management at the Republic of Ireland international team, which is obviously important to me and some people who are listening. And then we're going to move on to the piece de la resistance of this series, where we're going to look at the new Sunderland Till I Die series, focusing on episode one and looking through the episode to try and understand the greater context of the episode and what goes on in our views on it. Oh, excellent. Uh, just to say as well, before we start, as I've been saying the whole time we've been stuck indoors, uh, this pod's not going to speculate on COVID. Shout out to the key workers you guys are doing an absolutely heroic job. And we hope this podcast is taking the spirit in which it is made, which is simply to hopefully make a small positive difference for you all and keep us sane. Right, let's move into the news then. Uh, let's first thing I guess to talk about is furloughing. I mean, just before we came on air, a couple of things uh, have come out, haven't they? Uh, Nick, you just shared a link in our little group, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So originally, um, Liverpool were saying that they were going to be furloughing their staff and um, yeah, came under a lot of criticism off the back of that, obviously. Um, you know, as a massive club, one of the biggest in the world to be sort of looking to the government for handouts um, came across very, very badly um, amongst their core base saying, you know, the club can afford to pay these workers, why do they need to furlough their staff? So since then, they have actually announced um, a U-turn. They've reversed that decision. Um, so um, they've listened to the sort of the public in terms of their opinions and uh, yeah, U-turn that decision. And obviously, I think We'd all agree that that was the right decision to make to um, do that U-turn. But a uh, few other clubs uh, currently um, still furloughing their staffs, including um, Spurs, who I'm obviously a supporter of. Not not great from my standpoint. I think um, the club should seriously look about whether this is the right decision to make. But we all kind of know the character Daniel Levy is. But I think a lot of the fan base at the moment are screaming out to him to to reverse that decision as well, but just because of the way it looks for the club. They are another massive club. Ultimately, I know they're recently in debt because of the new stadium, but they are a massive, massive club and they don't necessarily need to be making this decision. See, I actually think that this... Uh, hatred, vilification maybe, of the decision that Liverpool's owners have taken with the furloughing initially. Obviously, now they've rode back on that. But I think that the disappointment of that belies a misunderstanding of what furloughing actually is and how it's funded, most specifically. 
Like this isn't stealing taxpayers' money. This is just the Bank of England just adding money to the the exchequer's accounts. So it's not the way people are trying to paint it. Like it's it, the way it's being painted. It's as if the owners of Liverpool are putting their hands into a nurse's back pocket and using it to pay the last twenty percent of someone's earnings and leaving the government to fork up the rest of it. Like the fact of the matter is that the state are were looking to are going to pay eighty percent of the wages of people up to two and a half thousand. Uh, pounds per month and then Liverpool were quite happy to pay the other 20% initially like like, okay people are saying Liverpool just announced profits yeah but like we're not talking like hundreds of millions of pounds or anything like it so like, like that's a vulnerable thing still even for the club the size of Liverpool they need to protect their long-term sustainability if there's a like if they have a serious cash crunch they're going to need to sell players they need to do what they can to protect people's jobs in the much longer term they need to avoid let's say the drop in quality that would lead to other costs on the club like needing to make more transfers sackings even layoffs of non-playing staff and there's just the big unknown element of this how long is this going to go on how long is Liverpool going to have to continue without revenue and actually Peter Moore even addressed this in his letter to fans when he was rowing back the decision and just to give a full reading in the spirit of transparency we must also be clear that despite the fact that we were in a healthy position prior to this crisis, our revenues have been shut off, yet our outgoings remain. And, like almost every sector of society, there is great uncertainty and concern over our present and future. Like any responsible employer concerned for its workers in the current situation, the club continues to prepare for a range of different scenarios, around when football can return to operating as it did before the pandemic. These scenarios range from best case to worst, and everything in between. It is an unavoidable truth that several of these scenarios involve a massive downturn in revenue with correspondingly unprecedented operating losses. Having these vital financial resources so profoundly impacted would have obviously negatively affect our ability to operate as we previously have. What is the issue with Liverpool furloughing? I think, I think for me, I think the main thing to highlight is the non-playing staff. Um, so it's, it's really, it's not, not really about the playing staff, it's about the non-playing staff basically telling all these people that they're not going to be working. Obviously, they know they're not going to be working, but the whole scheme, essentially, it, it was summed up quite well, actually, if you read the Sean Ingle article in The Guardian, where he said about saving just £1 million when you have an annual wage bill of £310 million and you paid £43 million to agents last year, it's, it's not a good look. And I think... That's that's the concern here, especially with Spurs as well. They instantly non furloughed all their non playing staffs, but no news at all about any of the playing staff who are all still earning two hundred thousand pounds a week for you know the highest earners within the team, and you know thirty thousand pounds a week for some of the other players. That's the concern there. I think you basically hit the nail on the head there, Nick. It's not a good look. Um, I think I've, I definitely have a lot of sympathy for Anthony saying there. Um, the scheme is basically being thought of as redundancy, isn't it? People are equating the two in their heads. So they're saying Liverpool are furloughing their staff. So people pass that as being Liverpool are making their non-playing staff redundant. That's that's not true, obviously. Um, but this is optics in a bad time. And unfortunately, nuance isn't the friend of a scared and irrational public. Um, I think the scheme was designed to stop SMEs from going under. Um, so to some extent, that's the worry. Um, that A lot of people are looking at it and kind of thinking, you know what? The detail means that you're right, Stag, but it's fundamentally not the best look. I mean, Newcastle and Spurs, um, you know, Spurs and uh, Levy, Newcastle and Mike Ashley, you can believe it. You can believe they're going for the furlough option or, you know, trying to make savings however they can. But Liverpool, 
WTAF, basically. I think the perceptual damage, so we're talking about the abstract, the fluffy brand kind of stuff here, was really tangible. And that's why they made the decision. Credit to them for changing their minds, by the way. A lot of clubs won't do that in the modern age. A lot of people won't admit, in effect, they're wrong. That's what the statement to me basically said in kind of convoluted business language. We were wrong. But like, look, Liverpool have talked about this in the past, about channeling Bill Shankly into their business decision making. And that, you know, his socialist ethos is something that they consider with every decision they make. And would I say that they considered that with this decision initially? No, of course not. But it's this kind of abject, just vitriol against furloughing, which is really protecting staff and Liverpool trying to make sure that when football eventually returns, they can take back on their staff again. Just think of the numbers, for example, that have come out from Manchester United's decision not to furlough. Okay, So they're paying 100% of the wages of 900 full-time non-paying staff. They're also paying the full salaries or payments that 950 other non-match day casual workers would get, plus another 3,000 casual match day uh, workers huge amount of employees, the huge amount of people that they're trying to protect the incomes of into the future at Liverpool. Now, again, I see why they're doing it. And I completely kind of see your point in terms of looking into the detail of what it all means. It's just at the moment, in terms of the brand, which is ultimately paramount because that's where the, mar- that's where the market strength comes from. That, that's why they made the decision. Whether I agree with it, I probably would have thought about it more in the first place in terms of what you said about Shankly, for example, and that sort of spirit of socialist. Like, I just don't think uh, that that should have been done. I think that that was a very kind of ultimately naive decision to go for it because they should have thought about how that would have been portrayed and how that would have come out. And ultimately, even though in, in a rational way, yes, of course, it makes sense for them to do it. I think that probably they are going to have a little bit of uh, damage now. But I mean, with doing the U-turn, I think that they probably made that a little bit better. Like Okay, so from that branding point of view, like it's unequivocal, of course, Liverpool shouldn't have made the decision they made in the first place. And as you say, credit for them for running back in it because it just didn't go with the ethos that they had. But at the same time, you can't say that, let's say, other Premier League clubs and especially other football league clubs at far lower levels are going to need this. Like there's so many of them are screaming out that they're going to go under at the lower leagues, especially if they weren't able to take a, take schemes like this furlough scheme. But at the end of the day, I think if you have a grievance with Liverpool being able or deciding to take on or to use that scheme in the first place then really what you have an issue with is how the uk government actually phrased this furloughing scheme in a legal sense and who they allowed to take it but it like it's not actually really taking money directly from the fight against covid this isn't liverpool reaching into a doctor's back pocket and i just i just feel that that's been seriously misunderstood in the middle of all this you wouldn't be suggesting that people are having to go at liverpool for other reasons or having other agendas with you stag that that would be absolutely unthinkable wouldn't it um do you know nobody does that no Anyway, uh, should we move on from this bit? Yeah. Um, so um, the, the next bit is obviously the indefinite postponement of the season. Um, and FIFA also earlier on today said that the nineteen twenty season is basically extended to whenever they want. So it's got to be played out. It seems like, um, I mean, I think it's like 90% we're sure that the season is going to be concluded in some way, shape or form. Although an interesting character did weigh in, didn't he, Nick, today on the length of the season? Well, yeah, we've we've had Karen Brady. Um, we also had Harry Kane, and and now we've had Luke Shaw. Luke Shaw's um, stepped up um, and given us his, his opinion on what should happen. He said the season should be voided. So uh, thanks, Luke. Um, you know, informative as always. Um, 
great um, expert advice there from Luke Shaw um, saying the season's going to be null and void. An interesting story has come from over here in Belgium where I am based at the moment. And so last Thursday, the Belgian Pro League recommended, so they hadn't decided, but they recommended that their season would be declared finished because of the pandemic and to just accept the, the, the table as it was as final. Now, they only had one match day left in their regular season. It's a different structure of a league to what you have in the Premier League. Um, but just to know, UEFA came out strongly against that on Friday, issuing a, jo- a joint statement with the European Club Association and the European Leagues, warning that abandoning domestic competitions at this stage is premature and not justified. So for sure right now, the consensus is to try and save the seasons across Europe. Yeah, cool. And speaking of uh, people coming in to save stricken areas, um, Mr. Kenny was uh, appointed uh, as the island head coach manager. I don't know what the style is over there at the moment, uh, replacing uh, Mick McCarthy. And this is something that you would, you wanted to talk about at Lempstag. Is he going to turn those 1-1s and 1-0s into 1-1s uh, and 2-1s? What's he going to do? Or maybe even 4-0 losses, but it's going to be a bit more interesting at least. So Stephen Kenny, uh, a name that many of you probably won't know, has been appointed as our manager. And Damien Duff, a name who many of you will know, is his assistant manager. So I, I think you need to understand where Irish football is coming from to kind of get to this. So in Euro 2016, we just about qualified and we took the oldest squad at that uh, tournament to the tournament. And I guess, look, we did get out of the groups and that was miraculous in its own way. But the team that at the time Martin O'Neill and Roy Keane were presiding over was definitely on its last legs and so it proved in the Nations League where we were drubbed continuously by Wales and Denmark coming last in our group and stuff. Um, Mick McCarthy took over and sure okay he returned smiles and he was clearly a good guy that the manager or that the players got on well with but look this was a man who played a brand of football that perhaps was kind of maybe belongs in the past at this point and the results were pretty much Nah, we we beat Gibraltar uh, reliably, just about. Uh, we didn't beat Georgia in two games. We did. There were no unbelievable results under Stephen Kenny, and so like the reason why Mick was brought in initially was to basically qualify Ireland for the Euros in 2020 because games were to be hosted in Dublin, and it would have been a major embarrassment for us to not qualify, and also because the FAI, as wasn't known at the time but has been known since, was financially crippled. So. Like The problem is, though, is that whilst we watch this really awful football being played, long balls, no ambition, the lot, we had this horrendous contrast when we looked up north to what Michael O'Neill was managing to do with even more limited resources with a Northern Ireland team that had you know, the likes of uh, Johnny Evans and uh, Kyle Lafferty and Stuart Dallas from Leeds just ripping it up and genuinely attacking really good teams. Like I even watched them playing against Germany. And they really had a go, whereas we had this long-term problem that we've had since Trapattoni in the 2000s, talking about not having the players. You do, we do not have the Tribune, is what uh, Trapattoni used to say. Martin O'Neill comes in, he's like, oh, well, if we had a young Robbie Keane, it'd be so much better. But like, yeah, of course, it would have been great to have a young Robbie Keane, a 100 Premier League goal striker, but we don't have this Robbie Keane. And so it's just, like, it's just... It was so frustrating to deal with. And, and Mick kind of just, he didn't quite say things as directly as we don't have the players, but it was much more so an acceptance that we can't beat Georgia away, which was just as heartbreaking, I guess, especially because you know well that Northern Ireland would have beaten Georgia away and at home comfortably. 
so Stephen Kenny comes in then. Who is Stephen Kenny? He is the man that was the manager of Dundalk when they qualified for the Europa League group stages a few years ago, pushing the likes of Zenit St. Petersburg, beating um, one of the Israeli teams along the way, taking out um, all sorts of like strong European teams. Like playing, though, and really interesting brand of football. He is obsessed with controlling the midfield, about possession. He's so open-minded to trying to get defenders to pass, to have players that attack. And most of all, what he tries to institute is a system. And like that has even been seen in his mo- most recent job, which has been as Ireland 21's manager for the last two years. I've been at a few of their games. I've watched even more of them. And what he's able to do is bring in a system that gets the best out of a whole squad, but where if you lose two players to injury, it seems like he's just able to manage to get the same out of the players that come in. And like, we're not a a nation that's usually blessed with pools of talent. And yet this is a man who could, you know, Michael Obafemi gets injured. Oh, it's okay. Aaron Connolly will come in and he'll get the same out of him. But not okay. They're both Premier League players, but he was able to do the same thing with left backs none of us have ever heard of. And that's what was most impressive about uh, Stephen Kenny and how he manages his team. And he's just so positive about things. And it's, it's exciting, guys. It's exciting. Definitely sound very uh, enthusiastic and excited about him coming in. Uh, I guess, as you said, the renewal of, uh, of of the squad and I guess given the dearth of talent that you guys have, to be honest, uh, to, well, compared to a lot of other countries, I suppose, you, you, the impetus for him is going to be to make this team more than some of its parts, perhaps. Um, I guess it would be fair to say if you're looking at it a, a, bit, a bit more objectively. Absolutely, right. but that's what every, almost every international manager has True. to do. You know, it's, uh, there's only a few tier one nations like the likes of you know, England, Spain, Italy, even, even Italy haven't been a tier one nation necessarily <laughs> lately. But, no. you know, Ireland's 21 team, like there is actually talent coming through. There's plenty of guys playing at the, you know, the top division in England or getting regular game time in the championship already. It's not just, you know, almost meme status already Troy Parrott who's 18 and barely played for anybody yet we all talk about him but there's there's the likes of Aaron Connolly the Adam Edas who's at Norwich there's uh, Gavin Kilkenny playing at Bournemouth Danny Muldreau who was at Bohemians last season is doing well Jason Knight at Derby County has done so well Connor Ronan as well he was a player who was out on loan in Slovakia and doing really well out there it's just like there's such a there's such a different like mental approach to the game of football with this team and their ambition I saw them playing Italy off the park in Dublin at a 21s game and this was an Italian team that had players that we've all heard of Patrick Cotone played uh, Moise Keane played plenty of other players there who were Zaniolo, playing Serie A Zaniolo um, was Nick Zaniolo there I don't think Zaniolo was there but there the were plenty goat. of oh if he was there you'd lost yeah. <laughs> possibly but <laughs> plenty of unbelievably <laughs> good players to a Serie A quality yeah. and played them off the park Oh, well, it sounds, it sounds like an exciting time for Ireland. Uh, watch out Northern Ireland, I guess. Ted, okay. you're a 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Right, okay. Um, so let's, let's move, move on there then to, uh, to WGTA in lockdown, featuring uh, for the first few pods, A Sunderland Till I Die. Uh, we're going to start with Series 2. First thing to talk about is why are we doing this? So obviously there's no FPL and it's time to spot from you guys that we're now openly just podcasting for our own amusement and to stop us going insane uh, basically is what I said at the top of the pub obviously we do want you to listen hope we entertain you uh, but obviously our main subject matter doesn't exist at the moment so at the moment we, we've got a choice basically we can kind of keep talking about you know what we've been talking about do a mailbag and things like that or we can try to do something else come up with something a little bit more a bit more novel a bit more uh, a bit more interesting with something to die, we're hoping that if we kind of go through kind of each episode and uh, talk about the, some of the key salient points, hopefully that would 
be a little bit insightful, a little bit interesting. Um, obviously, we'll be back to FPL as soon as possible, though. Um, but over the next six weeks, um, we're going to go episode by episode, uh, summing up our thoughts. Um, and we're kind of narrating the episode to some extent in the style of kind of the Great Generation podcast and stuff like that, uh, before diving into some key points at relevant times. So there's, uh, there's a sound bites and stuff. I'll be doing some magical editing. It's a different approach we're taking. It's not our usual FPL podcast. But, you know, we, we fancy doing something slightly different. Um, we're all watching Sunday until I die, as I said in the intro. We're we're all missing the football, and you know we can watch watch the football um, as we follow um, the series. I think um, both me and Tom have only seen the first episode so far, so it's very much a fresh take for us. I think Stag and um, seen a few more of the episodes. We've all watched season one as well, so we'll be um, recapping a little bit on what happened on season one. I think before we uh, we crack on. Cool. Right, let's take a break there, and we'll pick up uh, at the start of season two, episode one: A Role in the Renaissance. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Okay, so we're back, and it's a 43-minute episode, the first uh, episode in Series 2 of Sunday Slide Day, A Role in the Renaissance. Obviously, it starts with a last time, uh, last season, and uh, Anthony, can you fill in for how it started? Last season, it was a season in the Championship. What was meant to be a positive promotion story ended up actually being a dramatic relegation story, which we were all on tenderhooks really watching and was brilliant uh, it was a threadbare squad there were cutbacks we got to see the human impact on players and on the fans themselves we saw Jason Steele go from optimistic goalkeeper to shadow of himself in no time we saw local boy George Honeyman close to tears at relegation when it all went so so wrong at the end oh. as their season went from bad to worse their home form was terrible the fans turned against them for periods and then we also had star of the show Martin Bain the chief executive who at first was introduced to us in that season in that season um, having his morning swim but by the end we saw him leave to a crescendo of booze and cursing and the fans but yet the fans turned up for the final game at Sunderland in their droves like a mother that always loves her kids and <laughs> It was stunning that, you know, you kind of saw this club that there was so much soul there. And so then it ended with the new crowd coming in and this club being sold and hope yet again abound as Sunderland started in League One. Yeah, I felt like that end of the season one was just absolutely gut-wrenching when when you saw them all sort of down the pub, like crying, singing, sort of take my heart take my whole life too and just everyone just being absolutely devastated I just remember like the emotional impact really hit me and I wasn't even a Sunderland fan and you know you saw as you said Martin Bain leaving being sworn at Chris Coleman saying I'm a I've got five kids mate and getting in a fight with that fan that was abusing him it was a (laughs) quite quite a dramatic ending to it all and as you said yeah it started with so much positivity even though we all kind of knew what was going to happen we all had it kind of (laughs) gut-wrenching feeling in our stomachs as we watched along yeah i think i think the whole thing commoditized schadenfreude in, in watchable content didn't it um but yeah the series two starts with ellis short selling to a consortium uh, fronted by uh, Stuart Donald, obviously, and uh, a little interview with them at a press conference. Him, uh, Stuart Donald, and his uh, sidekick, uh, Charlie Metven, uh, who memorably says, The piss take party stops now. And the series opens indeed with Charlie telling uh, who we presume is his marketing team, uh, saying how £40 million is being lost per year. Uh, he said, This is a failed up business. This was 100%. We'll discuss this guy a little bit later on in the pod. But it turns out in the in the meeting as well, but no one had read the detail of the dire straits of the club. He exhorts his team to be part of the team that turned around Sunderland Football Club. Do something memorable in your career that you look back on in 20 years' time and you say, I was part of the team 
that turned that club around. And this is kind of the Peter Griffin, he said at moment as he name checks them having a role in the Renaissance. He does. But what I think is so interesting about this is that, you know, a lot of the time there might be takeovers or business leaders kind of come in and they'll talk about the need for cultural change, that people need to, you know, own their work or whatever. But I think you see that, like, there actually is a need for them to maybe, you know, own it a little bit more, that nobody knew that the club's interest payments of £7 million per year were equal to their whole entire ticket revenue for the season. Like, it was so stunning. Like, you know, that's the people who are selling the club to the fans and they didn't know that basic point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can build that into discussion on Charlie in a little bit. Um, but it definitely is true that what the club was like is, I think, clear from that from that sort of little insight. And they, could, they literally had no idea, did they? Hadn't bothered to read the uh, the little pat that he put together for them. But but they they said like they didn't know that whilst at the same time they totally knew what Charlie was trying to get across that like your your job actually has so much meaning because this is you know the temple of the city the stadium of light people come here no matter what this is the god they worship and yet somehow they still hadn't kind of connected those two details I thought it was amazing absolutely not so with that there's rousing music scenes of Sunderland uh, as Barry Glendening calls them and uh, opening music uh, on the river way uh, yeah you know, you know how it goes on the river way used to build the boats anyway uh, so at this point we've got a juncture uh, a question from our friend Death Star FPL during the opening credits uh, can you rate the opening title song alongside other preferred favourite opening songs he goes on to say he imagines Anthony is more of a Friends fan uh, but what's our opening TV tunes and what do we think of the uh, the opening to A Sunderland Till I Die yeah I actually really like the, the theme music yeah, as I said it does kind of create this emotional resonance with the, the city get builds a connection between yourself and the uh, and the city even if you're not from that area and you, you know it kind of gives you I think like with the, the start of the first season when you first heard the music for the first time they were talking about the religious aspect of Sunderland and how you know even in the church sermons they talk about the football club and they will pray for the football club and then you kind of get introduced to this intro music and they talk about you know the the port town and in, it was kind of like the, the imagery in the background is all kind of about the uh, the industrial sort of town and and the football and how it all connects within each other. Um, in terms of my favourite TV uh, tune, I, I don't know. I quite like um, sort of the. I quite like the. Um, if you've ever watched True Detective, I think that's got a really good um, soundtrack to it. Um, I'm also a big fan of the, the music within The Wire, both The Wire and the True Detective. I think that's just some of the same guy, but yeah, um, that's kind of my sort of scene in terms of uh, TV show intros. Uh, I don't know about you, Anthony. Are you more of a fan of uh, "I'll Be There for You"? I, I'm not a big Friends fan, but like I have thought about theme tunes that I like, and I was so I was thinking back at like childhood time, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh's ones. Like they really fit in the madness and the mold of the program. That's there, you know, it's just a, just pure color and imagery and sound. And I think that the the team tunes oh, get that man. across. Not Tom, hear me out, man. But then think about then Father Ted. It also kind of captures the essence of yeah, like you're kind of like going that. backward in time into this funny but tragic simpler past. And then you've got something very different, like what happened with match of the day there's joy hope the associations everyone understands it in ireland it's the same with the sunday game which introduces ga programs at home like it's, it's a saying that unifies the community but for me uh, the song which is called shipyards by the lake poets who um 
rather unfittingly is actually just the name of a man called Marty Longstaff, obviously a Newcastle name to all of us. But I, I think Death Star's description of it as a funeral march kind of nails it. Like the song is harking back to Sunderland's industrial past, sure. And it's trying to, it's talking about trying to make those who have gone by proud. But I, okay, it works because Sunderland's story has been very sad of late as a club, but I don't think it fits the really vivacious, ebullient reality of that club, like what it thinks it is, what it wants to be, and what its fans somehow still are for me. It's almost like it's knowing, isn't it? It kind of, as you, as we said, it, it always introduces itself full of hope, and as that hope sort of dissipates through the season, like it goes from being kind of quite funereal to really fitting the, the what, what you expect from the episode's content as things do go downhill i mean i don't know how it's going to go in series two but in series one like at the start it did seem a little bit like it jarred but then towards the end of the season when things were really going downhill very fast it really began to fit the show like almost the show grew into it due to the fact that the content happened even though the content was so kind of unplanned and spontaneous obviously it, was, it seemed like an incredible choice really well, maybe for season three, that might be another thing that Charlie Mevin um, looks to change as they try and create, create a new image for Sunderland, perhaps. Yeah, no, indeed. All right, and uh, my favourite entry to any show is uh, Hollow Talk, uh, Choir of the Young Believers, which is the opening of The Bridge, um, which is a, a similarly sort of sombre, uh, funereal start to a show. But obviously, that's a Scandi noir, so it's absolutely perfect for that. Um, Anyway, though, back to the show, and we open in June 2018. We're in Stuart Donald's bathroom, and he's talking about the vitality of promotion, how important it is. And he does this kind of hearty, kind of fan service bits of the camera. He's blown away by Sunderland, etc., etc. And I think he did seem kind of fairly genuine and articulate. I mean, he did use a lot of cliches, and notably, he doesn't have a Sunderland accent. But you know, that that, that seems by the by. But then you kind of hear this bit over the radio, don't you, about who he is and where he's come from, and that seems to be a little bit instructive. Who is Stuart Donald? Businessman from Oxford. Uh, he runs an insurance company, but he also has a ten percent stake in Oxford United, who play in League One, which is the division that Sunderland will be playing in. So that felt a bit breezed over almost, didn't it? As if they kind of said, you better not talk about this. It's a bit of a red line. I think that's a bit of a moment for discussion, isn't it? Because club ownership, Stuart Donald, as you heard, 10% of, of Oxford United, and he sold Eastleigh to now himself ownership. He's basically a serial owner, isn't he? But what do we think about this? It's a very kind of pejorative way almost to look at it if you want to call him a, a serial owner, because you could also just say he has a proven track record. And look at it from the other perspective. Um, like the the Chronicle, which is a paper up there in the northeast, looked at fan reactions at Eastleigh at the sale of when he sold it to take over Sunderland, and many of them were gutted, heartbroken. They were wishing him the best. Others would have said he overpaid for players. It kind of sounds a bit like what happened with Salford when they were in the lower divisions that they couldn't get anybody cheap, and so and they also would have criticised him for being a bit too impatient with his managers. But like the Guardian reported that he put ten million pounds into Aislay over five years to take them from one of those conference regional divisions right through to the conference. So they went up one division for ten million pounds. And for me, like I think Stuart, like okay, he's laden with cliches, sure, but he he's clearly trying. He's trying to be transparent. He's putting his effort in and trying to open himself up. And I think all the credit for him at that point. Far be it for me to correct your pronunciation, but I'm going to relish this. It's East Lee, not East Lay. East Lee. <laughs> ah, got one in. <laughs> <laughs> I think the whole criticism of him being a serial owner perhaps is a little bit unfair. As, as Stag said, what, what he did um, at Eastleigh was very impressive in terms of bringing him up 
the divisions and then um, looking at Sunderland obviously Sunderland is a much much bigger club and you know you, you'd say it's a, I wouldn't really call it being a serial owner when you look at managers you don't call them being a serial manager if they show some ambition and move from a league one club, club to a Premier League club and you certainly wouldn't say the same about players when they move around that they're sort of you know, obviously, you know, like sort of Slatan might have kissed a badge of many, many different clubs, but on the whole, you, you don't kind of chastise players for wanting to move um, places. So I think, I think personally, it's okay for him to have gone from Eastleigh. Um, the 10% of ownership of Oxford seems a bit dodgy, especially considering they're in the same league as Sunderland. And definitely seems like some form of conflict of interest there, but we'll, we'll see if anything um, over the course of the series builds from that. Yeah, I mean, I just kind of why that that was breezed over, um, especially because that was a really pertinent point. I mean, this guy owns ten percent of, of a division rival. That seems a bit, a, a little bit kind of bizarre to me. I guess it was just to help the story flow. Maybe it was convenient for them to just pay lip service and move on. I mean, on ownership, I did have a little look, and obviously you've got examples of you know, owners owning clubs in different countries. You know, Evangelos Marinakis, who owns Forest and Olympiacos, for example. The City Group obviously own lots. Um, but in the in England, you seem to be able to do something a little bit different, which is to do what Stuart Donald does or did, or I don't even know. I think he still does have both those stakes, and that you can own a little bit of two clubs in England. And owning a third percent or more is defined as being controlling. Whereas under UEFA rules, you can actually own 100% of one club and 49% of another because they define controlling as being 51% of a club. So that allows a loophole at the moment where you can say, okay, I'm actually not a controlling stakeholder. So I can have fingers in multiple pies effectively. It kind of goes back to what we're talking about, the furloughing almost, because it kind of it's just not a good look, is it? And I think that maybe that's why they sort of um, breezed over it, because getting into it would have been a whole kind of sub chat in itself, which is perfect for something like this. But maybe for the show, it would have arrested the momentum of the narrative, which maybe which is why I didn't really go into it. But I don't know. I think for a lot of people, I think it was a Hornet FPL spoke to me earlier on today when I said we were going to do this. And he said that that, that didn't really sit right with him. And you know, it's just something that I picked up on uh, the second time watching taking notes of this. And I thought, WTF, I, I can't believe I've heard that. I, call me commercially naive, but why would it necessarily be that important? Like, it'd be one thing if he was a 10% uh, owner of Oxford United whilst at the same time somehow in some sort of CEO role at that club. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, his his pocket is really on the line at Sunderland, a club that he's taken over and put his own money into. Whereas Oxford United was his boyhood club, one that he's put a bit of money into. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be the the sort of thing that's going to bring him untold riches. Like at the end of the day, his bread is buttered in Sunderland and 10% is a pretty inconsequential stake as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I can see both arguments, to be honest. I, I kind of agree with you there in terms of what you said. It is Perhaps it's inconsequential that he's invested in his sort of previous club and he does have some form of ownership. I think it's just it's just a very interesting to see how this develops and particularly if they are um, they do show some clips of them um, Sunderland playing Oxford whether that topic will be addressed again late, later on in the series cool all right um anything else on that bit uh, move on so um I think yeah the series moves on um with sort of the radio interview as, as I was picked up in that radio interview and then um some more kind of chats with with some of the fans and um then it kind of goes on to the sort of the axing of the 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 bloated nature of some of the playing squads. So we see the likes of Endong, he, he's shifted, um, Stephen Fletcher and uh, Sheffield United, uh, Jack Rodswell, of course, um, 
finally being shifted it was just absolutely ridiculous that whole storyline in the first series the amount of money that that guy was costing the club they had to get rid of him sharp and uh, they were able to to move him on to Blackburn luckily and um Aidan McGeady, he's still within the playing squad. I think most, a lot of us probably forgot him that he was even a thing, to be honest. You know, the glory days of his um, Everton appearance. And he was one of David Moyes' boys uh, brought from Everton to Sunderland uh, alongside the likes of Donald Love and I think Paddy McNair as well. God, I think he's, he's at Charlton now, but he's still on the contract at Sunderland. So your man, uh, McGeady, must have been on a ridiculous contract with them. Stag. It seems amazing that McGeady's still still under contract to Sunderland many, many years later. It's like it's been there forever, doesn't it? Putting his body on the line and playing brilliantly for them as kind of the series will play out in fairness. Like he, he wasn't a member of that screen of pain that we saw with Endong, Fletcher, uh, Guy and Jermaine Lawn and Rodwell. Like, you know, he's certainly not in that bracket and you kind of, as the series develops, you'll see the effort he's putting in and that he, he really does care. And you also saw that in the previous series where he kind of talked about I think it was Chris Coleman's methods and kind of wasn't too approving of them. But you could see that, like, unlike some of the players there, he really did care about what was going on and understood the value of the club. So, I, I don't know. I'll always stick up for the Republic of Ireland International, won't I? You got that vibe from Lee Catamore as well. He's another one of the players that saw one of these sort of bloated wage packets that they weren't able to shift. But he's another one that I felt like really did seem to to care about the club. He just, just wasn't able to put in the performances that the fans wanted to see, unfortunately. But that's because of skill or something else. What, what, about, what about Darren Gibson, though, Stag? I'm sure, do you think he cared as much about the club? <laughs> he, he certainly uh, talked the talk for a while. and He's, he's, he's actually been doing quite well for uh, Salford City, actually, oh. uh, this season. So uh, best of luck to Gibbo uh, yeah. in his new ventures. Stay off the vino, mate. Right, and then the, 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 we move into young, uh, brilliant manager Jack Ross being appointed. And you see his kind of football manager the game that is style uh, opening press conference and he says you know it's better to be going down enough and uh, it's a great challenge for him and he's hoping he can rise to the occasion but how do you think he, he came across he seemed like he's going to be a main guy uh, in this series isn't he I mean, it's early days. I felt like he said the right things in, in the press conference. He very, very much had a sort of football manager feel to it, didn't he? In terms of, well, he had about five options in terms of where he thinks they might finish at the end of the season. He's like, well, we're going to be going for a promotion. And, and uh, you know, the fans reacted positively to that comment. And uh, in terms of his uh, manner, he's obviously a sort of young upcoming manager, not one that, you know, I personally had heard of uh, before he moved to Sunderland. So, I think it's a it's a bold choice for sure. I think he'd come in with um, having been a manager of the year, a young manager of the year in Scotland the previous season. So you know he might have been actually quite a good coup for them to get at the time. But no, the the clichédness of the the very football manager esque press conference was hilarious almost. And my thing I enjoyed the most was actually seeing Charlie Methven kind of pressing himself up against the the wall to the side just watching it and his face was just telling like a thousand stories at the same time as he reacted especially to that as you call it Nick Reek you know where uh, Jack Ross just clicks the we're going for promotion button and he kind of goes oh god he said it he said it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was great. No, I think it's one of those wasn't it? So I think he was at St Mirren and he won, as you said, the Young Manager of the Year and he won the, the Scottish Championship that year and got them promoted. Sunderland and Ipswich were both actually gunning for Jack Ross's services and it sounds like, uh, oh, we'll see who got the better end of the deal, but Ipswich have uh, ended up with Paul Lambert. Ooh, interesting one. Uh, but yeah, no, he seemed like, a, seemed like a nice guy and you see him kind of getting on with the footballers as they come and go, um, clapping them, uh, clapping them, uh, the hell is this called? Uh, high fiving kind high, of. No, no, no. It wasn't really high five, though. It's 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 a, it's a, it's a, a real kind of vibe. like 
it's an up high like Denny Denny handshake thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like clasping hands with them as he goes through the physio room. And goes, you well, you well, and they'll go, yes, boss, yeah. And then it cuts to our man uh, Charlie Mevin speaking to his marketing team. And I guess this is one of the biggest points of this week's podcast and this episode because the overlay is Charlie saying he's a big picture man, he's a journalist, the marketeer, um, whereas uh, Stuart is the details man. He his uh, his role, he says, is to express things into plans, strategies, and ideas. Um, he, he starts a meeting with his marketing team. He's late, of course, and uh, he sets out as he says that he, he wants them to be the number one for engagement, fan service, and other things like that. Uh, but there's a key moment here, which is the key the key moment for episode one, which is the music change. It sounds very very silly, very very small, um, but they really did focus in on this and make this a big part of this of the episode because I think it is emblematic of you know a new ownership, new era, new things like that. So the music changes from the dance of the knights, aka the apprentice music, uh, to the sort of clubby trance. So this is dance of the knights, right? This, this is how I do it you've got to try and build people up and you've got to try and get the, the atmosphere building. The scene becomes a bit like a parody, basically, at that point. The question here, then, was it genuinely clever or was it just a shallow gesture? So, so I mean, when I was first watching this scene, I, I, I thought the whole thing was just, just came across a little bit ridiculous, a little bit, little bit parody-esque. I, I don't know. As you said, they, they chose to make it a big focus for episode one. I'm, I'm not sure if that was sort of a decision based on sort of Charlie's and Stuart. I don't know how much control they actually have in terms of the content that is on the on the um, documentary. But I think in, ter- in terms of a, a gesture, I, I couldn't get my head around it at first. I couldn't really understand why this was happening what was the whole point of it? It seemed it seemed very pointless, and that was illustrating later scenes as well. But then, when Charlie kind of explained himself later on in the episode in the tunnel, to kind of you know highlighted the fact that look, they've, they've got this club has gone a whole year without winning a single game at this um, stadium, or at least nearly a year. That was just, to be honest, that is an absolutely shocking statistic. And he really kind of you know gave off this you know, right, but basically saying what he wants to do, he's, he's, he's a big picture man, as he describes himself, he wants to turn Sunderland into a fortress, he wants to opposing teams to come to Sunderland and, and be scared, wherever that's going to happen with a bit of IB for EDM trance music, I'm not sure, but I can, I can certainly understand that he's saying that I can't affect things, you know, in terms of the players' performances, but I can change the stadium, that is what I have control over, I can make it I can make an intimidating place for people to come to. He wants people to come to Sun and be and be scared of you know of playing this team like they were going to Old Trafford in in the nineties and and zero zeros. You know that that's that's his grand picture. That's that's what he's going for here. And you know like his approach is is not really one that you know I, I would personally follow if if I was in charge of the company. It did come across. Um, and so I think we're going to mention later a little bit David Brentesque, but I can understand what he's trying to achieve with this. So I think I'm going to come in with a Methvin-esque one-liner here. But the fact of the matter is, is that he recognizes that if Sunderland were competing on The Apprentice, they would have been fired so many times. So they just had to break with the past on this. And so, I, I, look, okay, people, like even the people who were in there with him in the meeting, they were, you know, one of the guys points out that the music that they had was slow. It was boring. Like it wasn't motivating anybody. And as you say, Nick, he's creating a fortress here. And so I... 
I like that. Now, what I think is quite interesting, though, is that he, he plays the music and then he goes, you know, someone challenged me on this idea. And, you know, one of the uh, ladies points out how, you know, well, it's, you know, it's the song we've had for years and it's been here since the stadium opened. And, you know, it's for people of a certain generation, it ties us back. And what I love, though, is he asked, someone challenged me here. It was the same EDM track. They didn't even change EDM track as it comes to it. You see them walking out on the first day of the season to the same thing. So at the end of the day, Methvin's way or the highway. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. I think he'd made his decision um, and that he was basically just going to legitimate it through some sort of pseudo democracy. Um, but as anybody who's ever worked in the business under one entrepreneur knows, it's not a democracy. It's a dictatorship. It's a benevolent one, but it's a dictatorship. Um, but yeah, it felt it felt like a statement sacking almost to me. Like it was a demarcation of a new era. And, uh, you know, every manager does kind of, uh, I guess, in, in football terms, every manager does scapegoat a player or has been known to to assert his authority, uh, be it behind closed doors most of the case, or if you're someone like Jose Mourinho, throwing a player on the bus like Don Bele. Um, I was actually once the designated sta- statement sacking myself uh, for a, a CEO to assert authority at a past job. Yeah, when I was uh, my first ever job, I was a young upstart um, who dared answer her back uh, that I thought that she was, she told me to do something. I said, no, I don't think that's actually the right thing to do. Turned out I was right, um, but she tried to sack me over it. Um, I had to write a groveling apology I didn't really mean and then uh, soon left. But um, yeah, um, so yeah, um, but I think it does seem to be something that's done that people do want to make one statement, which is kind of cosmetic in some ways but in other ways does have that sort of profundity to it but I guess kind of a nice further avenue to talking about Charlie a little bit more because he is an interesting character here um, in terms of what Nick was saying about his personality his persona I suppose and how that sort of comes across and friend of the pod uh, James Corolt speaks to this we're not going to do this but here's the question he asked which was rank these bosses Charlie Methven Stuart Donald Martin Bain David Brent and Jeff Lintonator Linton uh, from the train guy um, but instead of doing that, the question I'm going to ask is, are the David Brent stereotypes fair? Um, do we think that they're merited? What is our view of, of this guy? I mean, I'm sure it will change over the course of the series and we'll come back to it. But in terms of this guy, I mean, is it fair to kind of characterize him as that kind of person straight away? So for me, the, the key with David Brent is that, you know, you're trying to be this pally, friendish, mentorish person whilst at the same time you think that all of your staff find you funny that they enjoy your company that they want to be around you that they respect you but at the end of the day they think you're just pretentious arrogant and mean i don't think that charlie methvin is under any illusions about maybe how he's coming across but he's trying to kind of win respect by winning almost if he was, if he was a football manager that's what he was trying to do you know it's like if we turn this ship around and they'll come back on side and so it's it's not the classic Brentism in that sense that he's he certainly doesn't think they like him now, but he thinks he'll make them like him. Yeah, that's the thing. I think the reason you, you make those comparisons is because of the way he's acting around the camera. And it'd be very interesting to see how he acted if that camera wasn't there, whether he'd have, you know, performed. Because it, it almost felt like a performance in front of the cameras. I'm going to make a point. I'm going to say to the guys, do you know the answer to this question? You should know the answer because he knows the camera's watching him or he's going to say, someone challenge me on this, you know, quite assertively. Like, I, I just can't see that an individual would act that way if the camera wasn't there. That, that was kind of my only kind of comparator between David Brent. But I think otherwise, I think it's probably a, quite an unfair comparison because David Brent anyone who's watched the office knows he's an idiot and uh, you know tries to be pally and tries to be funny and, and evidently fails epically and that's not really what 
Charlie Methuen's about. He, he's more about the business, and you, you can see that's his end goal. But you know, it did come across a, a little, a little bit like a caricature, slightly. I think partly because the camera was there. Yeah, I mean, he says, "I need everybody to see what good looks like," and then I think that that kind of informs, as Nick says, the performance that he puts on. But in terms of the Brent stereotype, I just don't think that that's fair. Actually, like I can see where where that comes from for Charlie more than did for Martin Bain, who I think just definitely was not a David Brent. Um, I think David Brent exists and does so well because he's a stereotype he's an he's somebody that you can basically say has some similarities in his character to lots of people that you know Bane felt a lot like a lot of directors that I've come across in my career who and he particularly was just having a really hard time and I felt genuinely sorry for him um, and I felt the David Brent for Martin Bane felt like something that people reach for when they hadn't been exposed to somebody like this guy before and kind of we're just looking for a stereotype to kind of help them relate to this person. And they, a lot of people did reach for Brent. I didn't quite get that. Uh, with Meth, then, I definitely can see that a little bit better. But I guess in his defense, sometimes you do have to have a structure in place. And the language of business is often buzzwords. Um, and, you know, uh, I know it doesn't sound particularly cool, but a lot of the time these phrases circle back, <laughs> revert, um, they got ducks in a row like all these sorts of things they exist for a reason because it gives everyone a frame of reference to talk on and i just ask is the fpl community that dissimilar like i often get people picking on me if i use a an unfamiliar word which is a part of an expanded vocabulary that people aren't used to you know for example someone like adam hurry uh, football cliches his whole account is based on the fact that we all use a shared lexicon and it's the same in business as well people do use the same phrases and they use them for a reason so everybody knows what they're talking about even though it does sometimes come across as pretty cringeworthy. Like, arrogant? Yeah, I can see that. But equally, like, why do people see that as well? I, I don't think he actually pervades too much arrogance per se. He's not, like, nasty or anything. It's just stereotyping a little bit. Like, but I guess, uh, kind of to Nick's point, like, how else would you want him to act? Would you want him to be nervous? Like, everyone would be having a go at him saying he's a bit sniveling, you know, a little bit kind of cowardly. If he was like a schemer, everyone would be saying, oh, he's basically Peter Baelish. He's basically a devious guy. Like, it's, it's very no win for him, I kind of feel. But one thing he does need to do is ditch the pastel chinos as soon as possible because they make him look like an absolute tight, don't they, really? You see, I think he reminds me actually of Jurgen Klopp. If Jurgen Klopp took over your business, he'd kind of do the same thing. He'd speak in very kind of layman's terms. You know, this business is effed. You know, this team is effed. We need to change things. You know, let's say, remember what Klopp did when they drew with West Brom. We brought the whole Liverpool team down to like Saturday, the away fans lifting their arms up. This sort of like crazy, what looked at the time to be complete statements, but in the overall sense of the, actually did help bring that team around. And, you know, within a few years, they were European champions. So, I actually think that's the biggest comparison that I could think of off the top of my head. And it's only just because you're meeting this man for the first time, this is how you view him. But because someone like Klopp came from abroad where he'd already succeeded, you had a totally different view. Yeah, I think all these little sort of things can be building blocks to a narrative. And as you say, like if things hadn't worked out for Klopp, then all these things would be looked at as being utterly ridiculous, like some sort of weird thing that some strange foreign manager had done, like as soon as you said that about West Brom, I immediately thought of uh, Phil Brown at Hull sitting the players on the on the pitch and doing half-time team talk, right? Like, if Hull had done really, really well that season, like, he'd have been lauded as being the guy who, you know, inspired them to this through some un- unorthodox sort of tactics. And I think it's kind of that sort of how things become a narrative, I guess, is 
But he even briefly got that credit before again being derided, did he not? Because j- did they not win a weekend later and Jimmy Bullard went out I and sat Jimmy, them all around him I and did Jimmy, it? I think Jimmy Bullard was taking the piss of but, but he was getting the credit still for, you know, re-energizing them by maybe yeah. like being a bit self-effacing. And then yeah, maybe it was, short, it was short-lived, I think. I think it was just mm-hmm. Jimmy being cheeky rather than uh, the Phil Bound being credited. Yeah, I mean, a week's a long time in football, of course, as we all fondly remember from our days of watching football. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that's definitely um, a complimentary uh, comparator there, though, uh, to compare him with um, Jurgen Klopp. I think, uh, yeah, maybe we'll go with that one as opposed to David Brent for now. But let's see if that, that changes uh, later on in the season there, so. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I kind of in tune with this kind of changing things up, making things happen. You see the, the signings coming in, you see training kind of starting under Jack Ross. You see them changing the seats so it comes up that the pink seats are really annoying the fans the the light in the stadium of light is too lighty it's making them all go pink uh, so they're changing all the players you see mr onien one of the footballers pronounced nine like oh, the nine. number oh nine yeah, it's oh nine i, okay. I thought it was oh nine at first but no it's nine like the oh, number. mr oh nine i felt uh, like yeah Luke, Luke, going in two-footed yeah. sorry <laughs> luke oh nine uh, He's half Asian like me, which I enjoyed. Um, uh, helping half Irish as well. <laughs> yeah. Probably, I don't know. <laughs> For once, I actually don't know. I'll check. He, he seemed a bit starstruck by Aidan McGeady and uh, Brian Oviedo, didn't he? <laughs> which I was a bit... Yeah. I actually... Do you know what? Sorry, to like, we'll focus in on Luke 9 for a second because I wrote down in my own notes when I was watching it. Starstruck. <laughs> because it just totally sums <laughs> and then, him up. And he had an absolute, absolute shocker of a first game as well. A shocker of a first game, but also he had a shocker of a chair-fitting session. Because there was that fan who came up oh, to him. And yes. they, were t- <laughs> they were talking about, you know, you know maybe they'll, you should sign this chair. Because maybe when you become something, it'll be worth something. Yeah, what's, your na- say, what's your name, sorry? What's your name? Yeah, L- Luke what's your name? 9, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's Luke. And then, no, what's your surname? Luke 9? Era, yeah, <laughs> you know, and then maybe they'll say Luke 09 built this chair, <laughs> and it was just like, Oh, Luke, ah. this was the chair that was fixed by what's your name, Luke? <laughs> Luke, Luke, what? Oh, no. right, that's what you could see. In my notes, I just put Luke 09 fixing the chairs. <laughs> I just I think it, the whole chair fitting though I think that was quite a, another sort of clever brain wave from from Stuart and, and Charlie though it, it did feel like they're sort of trying to harness the power of the fans getting the, the new um, signings involved getting all the fans involved and uh, a quick way for, for some uh, free labor as well which was a very very clever sort of uh, policy to introduce in terms of they're uh, trying to cut down the budget as, as much as possible <laughs> Maybe something to just look at there. There was a bit of contrast, though. So you've got this effort that the two directors are putting in to get the fans in. You could say for free labor if you want to, as you say, Nick. But they're trying to get the fans in to have a physical manifestation of like the change. But at the same time, you had this like physical manifestation again of the culture of the staff within the club that Stuart walked past. If you remember the glue that was there was a sign that had fallen off the outside of the building, and Stuart was complaining that oh my god they, nobody has like had the joy in their work to go and fix this sign it just looks so awful I can't believe it I just love that kind of like play between the two at the same time that you're you're kind of seeing that both legs aren't necessarily traveling at the same speed at that club 
Oh yeah, exactly. And then that scene is juxtaposed with Charlie testing the new music and having a really cringeworthy exchange with the stadium announcer um, and kind of walking around the stadium hearing this sort of EDM IB for club music and kind of you know, throwing his hands up in the air. And you're kind of thinking, oh mate, oh mate, come on. Like, he's one of those people who hasn't accepted his age sort of thing and probably still sees himself as being like how he was when he was 20. He was, he was a DJ. Really? He was a DJ. He was a DJ. Yeah. I thought he was just and, uh, uh, guessing that. No, 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 no. Former DJ. And so I think that that's part of it. But my favorite part of that exchange was, you know, he asked him to turn it up and the guy comes down through the radio. You're the boss. He said, oh, well, I wouldn't say that. And it's just kind of, ah, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Yeah. Okay. I think I guess you can see from that sort of exchange that it was incredibly cheesy, uh, Adam Pritchard level of cheese there. But you kind of look at it and you kind of think, ah, okay, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Um, so moving on, we go. You know, injuries start to come in. The new the new striker Wyke has been injured, and a few other players have been injured, and they're kind of thinking, oh, you know, the big game, uh, the first game of the season is against Charlton. Um, they all sound very nervous the morning before. How you feeling, all right? And uh, yeah, I mean, they do the games really, really well, I think, on Sunday like Day. Like, it's a real centerpiece. It takes about 15 minutes of this episode actually to go through that whole sort of gamut of what's going on from them arriving to the game to the Spanish uh, Ned asking, What are they singing? Uh, to, to, the, uh, to the last gasp, Lyndon Gooch goal. Everyone loves a Gooch goal, don't they? Um, but yeah, no, very, very cool indeed. Uh, what do you guys think about how they do the uh, how they do the games in Sunderland Slide? Because I think it is really cool. Yeah, I really like it. I think it was, it's very interesting to spend so much time on one particular game, and they did, did that quite a bit on, in the, the last series as well. Sort of these focal points, these focus points, and you get to see the the board members as well um, at halftime going to their private room, all kind of getting quite worked up, quite agitated, and you, you kind of see the fans as well. You didn't see as much of the fans this episode you have done previous series, but um, yeah, it's uh, I, I do really like the way they focusing on the match i couldn't i had no idea what the score was going to be to be honest i don't know if you guys had any idea at all but that kind of adds a bit of drama to the occasion as well none of us can watch any real football at the moment so yeah yeah i thought that was really effective what i thought was really effective about that whole pre-game part actually there was really nice cinematography around sutherland etc etc you know showing the, the the city getting ready but what i really liked was that okay as tom alluded to we saw that the actual management group were super nervous before the game and we saw Stuart Donald talking about his doubts that if their hard work wouldn't pay off and how would it go or whatever but they weren't just worried within themselves and with each other they were also nervous like outside to fans to the owners group like and they were trying to be as transparent they could about how they felt and the uncertainty of the occasion and there's that moment where they pulled up beside another fan in a car and they spoke out the window to each other and they were basically just explaining that they were all that they were super nervous and the fan was kind of almost wondering how could you be nervous but I, I loved that moment of just like okay these guys are just doing their best to try and integrate and put their body on the line almost for the club well, put their uh, put their money on the line, I suppose, for the club, and put their professional pride on the line for the club, which seems to be an underlying sort of factor of this show. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, there's this fantastic last gasp uh, diving header uh, past the Charlton keeper by Lyndon Gooch, which settles the game. And then there's kind of we fade out. We have. Uh, our man Charlie uh, providing this sort of overlay who kind of starts to talk about as the fans all cheer deliriously at uh, what they're trying to do. Our job is to keep ourselves steady even while around us emotions are swirling. 
he kind of reminded me of the tree people in the Lord of the Rings because he's talking about how, you know, we need to be steady while people are emotional. We need to still the turmoil and we need to harness the passion of the fans. He really reminded me of those tree people that it's just like, you know, no matter what, we will be slow and deliberate and we will be, we will think about what we do and try to not just lose our minds. I kind of liked it again. Okay. There's cliches, et cetera, but I still kind of liked the message he was trying to get across. It wasn't just like, I'm as delirious as the rest of you. Let's get on the roller coaster and see where we go Sunderland have had enough of that like like the Ents for you for me I was thinking Rodgers Kipling if you can keep your head while those around you are uh, losing theirs I I thought he was going to finish the line because he had like half of a line and he didn't actually go for the rest of it but yes I saw that yeah yeah but yeah no uh, I said harness the passion of the fans and if we get that right the intent the intensity and emotional support can be an unstoppable force he says to end it on a horribly cringeworthy Brentism. It definitely felt rehearsed that line, didn't it? But <laughs> as you said, he, he did. Uh, you could tell the vibe that he was going for in terms of what the message he's trying to portray, at least. Yeah, patient and considered in the face of delirium. I think probably is about right. So that takes us to the end of episode one. Did we like the episode, guys? Yeah, I think it was a pretty solid introduction. Like there was an awful lot of new things to take into account with this. Like there was a new manager, a new squad, a new ownership group, new chairs, new music. An awful lot of things to kind of get acquainted with. And I thought they did a pretty good job of bringing us through that and into the first game of the season, which was, I guess, the perfect kind of Cinderella story for day one. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I really like the episode as well. It's actually, in terms of the football documentaries that I have seen, it's certainly been the best one of the bunch. I've only seen seen the Salford one, uh, Leeds one and Manchester City one, but I feel like this this definitely is all the best and not just because of the, the sub story element to it but just in terms of the cinematography and everything that goes with it yeah it's very good i thought as well and for, 43 minutes i think the next episode that we'll cover next week um is only about half an hour so yeah quite, quite a long introduction but introducing all those things as stag said and uh, key takeaways i guess from this episode as well uh, the first thing is to see whether charlie can implement what he's talking about so often you get loads of people at companies who are all fart no poo uh, we'll talk a lot in uh, conference calls and we'll talk a lot in working group meetings about what they're going to do and you find out two weeks later they've done absolutely nothing so it'd be interesting to see whether charlie does do that um and whether stuart donald's vision can be uh well charlie's vision i guess uh, through stuart donald can be realized uh, any other key takeaways do you think from this I loved uh, when they were doing the repair of the seats uh, scene. Uh, one of the uh, fans that was there talked about the new owners being a godsend. And uh, what I kind of liked is, you know, immediately went through my head was how long will that last, knowing what had happened to the previous ownership group? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is very interesting. I also um, noticed, obviously, with Josh Madger, um, who we haven't talked about in this episode. Um, I remember last season, he was like the young upcoming, full of enthusiasm, excited to be at the club. And then I think the first thing we... Um, when he's sort of in the changing room, he's late and uh, he's like, oh, what was your excuse? Why are you late? He's just chilling, just chilling at home. Um, you, it felt like a lot of negative energy, a lot of negative energy that we saw from some of the players at the beginning of the previous season. So um, it'll be very interesting to see how that develops um, and his, his relationship with the new manager as well. Yeah, some foreshadowing there, it may be said. I can see Stagger. Like the, there's a particular moment there actually just as the, as uh, Jack Ross keeps walking out of the room and Maja looks across to forgive me I don't remember which of the other players and the two of them kind of make eye contact and you kind of know that they're yeah. both like oh that those handshakes or whatever you want to call them they were naff weren't they you know yeah. they're immediately they've just written them off yeah, there was certainly a little between the two players yeah yeah they left that in didn't they just a tantalizing moment like the camera lingered just that 
second too long just to kind of show you that, that they wanted you to see that uh, that exchange between the players, the unspoken exchange, of course. I think it contrasts quite well with, with George Honeymoon, who, who, who sort of like, he came across, hey man, sorry, who came across um, he's the sort of best out of all the players in the first season, the, the player that wears um, sort of his heart on his sleeve and was given the, uh, the captain's armband. Yeah, no, absolutely. Cool. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And um, we'll be back you know, next week to talk episode two. Um, that would be kind of the way we do it. We'll kind of narrate in some sentences our way through the episode and take some pit stops during it uh, just to talk through some key points. So, for example, you know, tonight we're talking about the ownership issue and also uh, talking about um, Charlie and his sort of uh, way of approaching uh, way of approaching things. Thanks very much for listening, guys. And please do give us any feedback or any thoughts that you want. I think we're, we kind of see this as like a, a great opportunity to kind of almost explore the world of football with Sunderland to Legi almost as like the conduit that kind of just brings us along the way. And I think there's an awful lot of really interesting themes. I think I'm the only one here who's watched the whole series straight through um, already. And there's an awful lot to consider and unpack to use one of another one of those uh, directorisms as we go through this. And it's, it's actually a brilliant series, so. Yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to, to watching the rest of it. And I think I'll probably be doing episode by episode as as we pod, um, just so my opinions aren't too biased, even though I do know what happens with Sunderland at the end of this particular season. Um, but yeah, um, that, was, that was fun to do anyway. And uh, just to say who we are, um, we are Who Got The Assist, Twitter, at WGTA underscore FPL, at WGTA underscore Nick, at FPL Stag. Um, and we're on Instagram, WGTA spot FPL. We'll be back next week to talk about episode two, the old-fashioned way. Well, I'm not going to assist you with anything again, but stay safe and we'll speak to you very, very soon. Cheers. Salon. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Sports Social Podcast Network.